The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Thanks everyone for coming here tonight. Okay. Um, I'm very happy to introduce um, Santicaro, who has been coming to Common Ground annually for many years now. And so it's a great pleasure to have him. Um, some of you may know that he was in Thailand in the early 80s and was with the Peace Corps. And um, it was after his stint in the Peace Corps that he went and had a retreat with Ajahn Buddha Dasa at Swan Mok in uh, Thailand and um, eventually stayed on as a monk. And he became um, Ajahn Buddha Dasa's primary translator and was with him for many years until his death. And Ajahn Buddha Dasa was uh, a really remarkable um, teacher and figure who was very, very interested in how we live our lives, very interested in the fabric of the world and um, bringing certain insights of the Dhamma into daily living. So uh, his um, his thought has been inspiring to me in its um, progressive um, inclination. And um, uh, and Santikaro um, came back to the states in um, I think the early aughts and uh, founded um, with his now wife, Jo Marie, Liberation Park is a Dhamma Center in central Wisconsin, and it is a place where people can study and uh, practice and very beautiful uh, secluded space in the hills. And Santikaro also um, continues to teach nationally and internationally. Um, so it's always really such a, a pleasure to have him here. And he'll be here um, for tonight's talk. For tomorrow, there's a workshop. And then on Sunday afternoon for uh, a community conversation. So his topic tonight is, Can Religion Be a Vehicle for Peace in the World? Welcome, Sonny Carl. Thank you. Thanks, Patrice. Welcome, everyone. <coughs> and... Thanks to Common Ground for having me back. We'll see if that continues after tonight's <laughs> talk. <coughs> There's a little background to tonight's topic. Uh, had to do when the email reminder came in from uh, Shelley about a topic. I I was in Thailand. I got back from Thailand less than a month ago. And while there, the Paris attacks happened and then the whole revving up of Western counterattack and that was on my mind when I was asked to come up with a topic 
Also, <coughs> while there I spoke on an aspect of Ajahn Buddhadasa's teaching concerned with what he called interreligious cooperation, which he believed was for the sake of world peace. So there I was in Thailand, and there's uh, that talks on the web somewhere in video, talking about peace, interreligious cooperation for world peace. And yet we had some prime examples of the opposite. And then get back to the States, and it's the presidential campaign. <laughs> and if you ask me, peace is in short supply uh, with that whole eight-ring circus, or 12, 15, it's hard to track. So that's a little background. Also, I want to address my use of the word religion in the topic. I generally teach in places where a significant percentage of people who come don't identify as religious. Some of might consider themselves Buddhist, although that's can be up in the air. It's uh, this dance. It's funny you're in a Buddhist place, but people are doing Buddhist practice. There are Buddhist images, but a large percentage of people, if I may be blunt, have major hang-ups around that. And then, of course, it's okay, because we're liberal in the Buddha, you know, blah, 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 which is kind of true, but it's also kind of a fudge not to offend our modern sensibilities. So I chose to use the word religion, even though it's a word that a number of people are uncomfortable with. And I want to explain that briefly by saying tonight I'm using the word very, very broadly. Personally, I refuse to let the word be defined by Christians, especially uh, fundamentalist or evangelical. It's a big thing where people just assume at least I've heard this so many times I've been tired of it for 20 years, the assumption religion has a God. Well, Buddhism doesn't have a God, therefore we're not a religion. Or we meditate, we don't do ritual. Uh, there's some worthy discussion and all that, but for tonight I ask to set it aside and use the word religion very broadly in a way that includes all forms of Buddhism, including Buddhism practiced here, including so-called secular Buddhism, and 
including the secular mindfulness insight meditation movement, which some people will say is spiritual but not religious. Uh, we could spend a lot of time on semantics, so just bear with me and let me lump it under a big basket heading of religion. And if you want to debate that, we'll stick around after 9 o'clock. <laughs> My last uh, sort of preparatory remark is when I ask this question, I'm really asking it about us. It may begin as a rhetorical question, can religion be a vehicle for peace in our world? And when I thought of this as a title, I was serious. Can it? I'm not convinced. Theoretically, I'm convinced. But in real life, I have serious doubts. I'm, I'm not uh, settling on an easy theoretical or doctrinal answer. And yet, looking around, I wonder, in this world and in our extremely conflicted species, both in other countries and right here in the good old Middle West heartland, is there anything we have going for us that can be a vehicle for peace? My teacher, as well as people like the Dalai Lama believe, or Pope Francis, believe religion can be a vehicle. And I tonight want to ask, well, can it? Can it really? And especially can the version of religion that we're doing be a vehicle for peace? Or will we just do some nice platitudes and then forget about it? That's kind of my core question. Also, when I say people like us, I'm not implying that we're uh, some sort of homogenous all the same. I'm assuming a lot of diversity and I'm, I'm not making anything but very general assumptions about what we're doing. Probably has something to do with mindfulness, insight, things like that. But specifics, I, I, I'm not guessing. But I still think the question can be relevant. <coughs> So that's a bit where the title comes from. And again, I want to stress, I'm asking the question, first of all, about us, because we're the people here tonight. First, let me do a, a quick cherry-picking from world history of examples when religion was not 
a vehicle for peace. <clears throat> Open holy books like the Christian Bible, the Quran, and the Bhagavad Gita, and you will find violence. And violence that's justified in the name of whatever religion owns those books. I'm not an apologist for any of those traditions, so I'm not going to try to explain that. Nor do I um, disrespect the better grapplings with that fact that uh, well-intentioned Christians, Muslims, and Hindus may, may engage in. By the way, uh, Buddhist scriptures, especially of the Theravada sort, it's not quite, I don't really know of a place where war, that form of violence is justified, but capital punishment you could find places where that seems to be acceptable 2,500 years ago. And there's a lot of warrior language because the Buddha came from the warrior caste. Later Theravada tradition does have texts, texts, uh, especially in Sri Lanka, that do justify uh, war. In this case of the Sinhalese against the half-human Tamils. So it's not like Buddhists get, you know, a pass on this, this question. So the holy books can be problematic. <clears throat> Second, uh, in our particular cultural history, at least those of us that have major European ancestry, well, there was the Crusades and the Thirty Years' War, and my knowledge of European history is petering out, but I'm sure there was more. Or if we come across the pond to this continent, we have religion playing a very active role in slavery, a pretty nasty, violent business, if you ask me. And religion was an apologist for that. There were exceptions, but apologists for that Apologies for genocide against Native Americans. Uh, and more recently, things like Central American death squads. So history uh, can be rather grim, including stuff that happened on this continent. And lastly, 
Buddhist countries have engaged in violent nationalism. Japan uh, invading China. There was a war with Russia in the early, I believe it was early 1900s. And uh, religious leaders were very enthusiastic for those wars. And like here, if you were a conscientious objector, you, you were in trouble. And there were, including Buddhists, but a minority. Fast forwarding a little bit, uh, Burma's interesting because Burmese monks actually carried weapons in the fight for independence against the British. And many of you are aware of the ugly business in Burma against the Rohingyas, who are a Muslim minority. And that's often been people who identified as Buddhists were coming up with fear-mongering stories about how the Muslims were going to take over. There's no way in you-know-where that that could ever happen. And yet, people believed it. It seems religion is very good at stoking such fears. fears. And uh, one reason this, another reason this topic is alive for me personally, that same kind of nationalism is growing in Thailand. Sometimes it's against the Burmese, which is not framed as Buddhist. But it's currently similar stories to what we hear here about the Muslims taking over. Muslims are one or no, four percent of the population. It's going to be pretty hard to take over, even with all that Saudi Arabian petrol money. Oh, but they're on America's side. I forgot. <laughs> okay, so I'm trying not to dwell on that stuff, but quick survey, not hard to find ugly, brutal stuff in which religious leaders supposedly educated, you know, believers of multitude of faiths have been very violent. And I didn't even talk about sexism in patriarchy, which is maybe the oldest and biggest form of religiously sponsored violence. So that's on one hand. Do we have examples of religion actually being a vehicle for peace? I've got some, and maybe you all can think of others. And these are examples where I directly or indirectly have connections. Uh, 
in the 90s, I started to be involved in the Philippines, a number of other Asian countries, but the real strong connection with certain Catholics in the Philippines. One bishop in particular, Julio Labayan, a Carmelite, and priests, nuns, lay people, uh, church workers, and uh, NGO people, <clears throat> some of whom are still close friends. Bishop Labayan was in uh, a prelature. It wasn't a full-blown diocese rather poor on the Pacific coast of the main island, which is Luzon. And the New People's Army was very strong there. And he often was a mediator between the army and its goon squads. I, I forget Kafkos, I think they were called, some supposed village defense force, but poorly trained guys with guns, kind of like what's out in Oregon, and more government support than the Oregon guys are getting. <laughs> I could go on for a few hours about programs operated by Bishop Labayan and his people. And there's some documentation. That's an example that's been replicated around the world. Places like Sri Lanka, I've met Catholics who worked for peace, including when there was a really ugly civil war going on. Central America, liberation theologians, and in this country and elsewhere. So that's one set of examples. <clears throat> Another perhaps easy example is Gandhi, who was a very devout, person, inspired not only by the Bhagavad Gita, which also in some ways seems to uh, apologize for war, at least in a mythic way, and yet Gandhi found messages that for him were messages of peace. And he was a leader in nonviolent, major nonviolent social change. Flawed in some ways, perhaps, but from my perspective, did manage to work for peace in very meaningful ways. And interestingly, for Buddhists, there was a Japanese priest who knew Gandhi in India and he's 
he became the leader of the the Japanese group that builds peace pagodas, Nippons in Myohoji. And they've got a few in the States and pretty much every continent. They also lead peace marches, like from India to Nagasaki, or I forget where they started, I think, Somewhere they started around Europe and ended up in Auschwitz. Or another one from Brazil where there's a lot of slave ships landed because there were s- slaves in places like Brazil throughout South America also. Brazil ended slavery about 1870. And they did a peace march up from Brazil, I'm pretty sure it was Brazil, through Central America to D.C. Uh, so they they chant. I've chanted with them. And they do peace pagodas. And they do peace marches. And one of the ones they did went through Thailand. And they stop and do do dialogues with local communities. I think that's uh, valid piecework. They tend to be willing to face difficult issues in ways that are respectful and yet provocative because our species has a high capacity of staying in our comfort zone and going back to sleep when possible rather than facing unpleasant issues. Third example I'll give is the civil rights movement. The movie Selma's a nice reminder of that, or I don't know if you saw the shindig from the White House was that I think that was last Sunday. I was with my mother in law in Walla Walla, Washington and we we caught the blues and other stuff which celebrated uh Lyndon Johnson signing whatever the National Endowment for the Arts, but there was also a shout out for the voting the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act none of which would have happened without the civil rights movement with people that we saw in Selma, people like John Lewis and other SNCC activists who were doing some of the hard community organizing and then the black sharecroppers who bore the brunt of the violence, while the preachers got all the credit. (laughs) But still, um, Martin Luther King lost his life partly for that, partly for opposing the Vietnam War. And religion held that together and held it on track in a way that I still find very meaningful and inspiring.
So some sets of examples, if I knew more, we could probably find many more examples of religion being on the side of peace in human history, <clears throat> including uh, religiously inspired abolitionists who opposed slavery in this country, and so on. So what do you think? This is partly a question for all of you. Can religion, and especially the form of religion that you practice, whatever meditation you're doing and whatever in your life supports meditation. And to borrow one definition of religion, whatever you do to align your life to the highest reality, or if you like, the deepest truth, which is an old meaning of the word religion older than Christianity. It's a Latin word that predated Christianity, so there's no need for us to be limited within a Christian-defined version, even though we live in a nominally Christian society. Another piece of uh, what inspired this is it's kind of popular that religious people will get together on certain occasions and pray for peace. There are uh, different times of the year, interfaith vigils, everybody says a chant or a prayer, and these are intended to foster peace. Personally, I believe that's useful, maybe as a beginning baby step. But I wonder, are we taking further steps of what we would really need? So I'd like to move on for the next part of this by summarizing uh, what I've just said by acknowledging, yes, religion is doing some things, has done some things, which can be vehicles of peace. But it's a mixed bag. So next, I'd like to be asking, and again for us here, is what religion is doing, are what we are doing in our forms of religious, or if you prefer spiritual practice, enough? To me, this is a pregnant question 
Maybe I'm just getting old, but things don't look so good. And so when I ask enough, I've got some markers in mind that might serve as not perhaps even goals or ways to start asking are is religion are we doing enough because i is it fair to say that everyone in this room is meditating partly to find peace at least be less stressed which is in the direction of peace i assume that's not too far off track oh and i i should be a little careful if we hear these questions from the perspective of individualism which is strong in our culture the isolated individual ego will hear me am i doing enough and then all of a sudden there's this poor little individual wondering if i'm supposed to carry the burden of this big huge problem if if you feel at all such um a challenge made to you please examine the you who you feel is being challenged maybe there'll be time to come back to this it's a huge obstacle in my mind because many of us coming to buddhist practice or buddhist meditation are growing out of this very fragmented individualistic society and we've got somewhat shaky uh alienated isolated egos so it's scary and then i've got to do something for world peace what can i do i i hear that question so much what can i do as if one of us is going to be the hero who tips the balance and saves humanity from certain destruction uh if anything like that, i i exaggerated a bit towards the end just there but this what can i do is rife with assumptions that don't hold up based in hearing the question from a very individual place and and i'm not blaming that individual this we were socialized this way on the other hand buddhism is about waking up from that kind of stuff i kind of cheated and jumped to the end of my talk but i thought i should put that in here so you don't uh take this personally in the wrong way so back to the question of enough or i'll rephrase it what would be enough 
what would be signs that religion, you know, globally, all the, or enough of the different kinds of religion in the world, what would be signs that it's doing enough? And then that's something we might, each of us, be able to contribute to or fit in with. I've got four markers, none of which are small. Oh. But to me, really uh, highlight a certain urgency. The big one, in a way, is climate devastation. According to the overwhelming majority of competent scientists, and the naysayers aren't really competent in climate change, they tend to be old nuclear weapons designers. <laughs> Funny how those things work. Um, but the science is saying we're in big trouble. Some are already saying it's too late. I'm crossing my fingers that the ones who are saying it's not quite yet too late. We might still have a window. So that there's some real shifts in that one. Second, can we stop this macho foreign policy? The same garbage that helped create ISIS is gonna, as Einstein pointed out, the height of stupidity is to solve a problem with the same thinking that caused it. It's not an exact quote, but it's pretty close. Can we stop this macho foreign policy? And it's not just Republicans, for those of you who lean Democrat. Can we stop that? Uh, three, this one's even bigger. Can we end patriarchy? <laughs> Which I think is part of the first two. And might as well go for ending racism while we're, we're at it. Since, in my mind, all four of these are intertwined. And let me add a fifth marker. And this is where I believe religion's proper work might be in, in regard to the first four markers and similar things. Can we fo foster genuine respect, understanding, and cooperation among things that we normally call religion like Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Judaism, uh, Hinduism, Taoism, Shintoism, Buddhism, Paganism, and so on. 
can we really foster respect instead of big expensive conferences where everybody's kind of selling their thing but avoiding the hard questions. That's my take on those conferences. It's not totally fair. It's a broad generalization. But can religion genuinely foster respect, which then would create space where we could understand the great variety, which I consider to be beautiful, many flavors, so people can find what will do the job and then work together. And nowadays I'm feeling, as somebody who's deeply involved in a historical religious tradition, can we expand this respect not to the historical religions like the ones I mentioned, but movements that I think deserve a seat at the table. Uh, Feminism, for example. I haven't met a feminist who would like to be called a religion, but there are parallels. And I'm not saying it should be called a religion, but such an important and powerful movement should be part of whatever dialogue goes on between religion. Um, The best of secular humanism, even if a thing calls itself atheist, every atheist I've met has beliefs about what's true and good. The Greeks might consider that religion. (laughs) Um, Just atheist religion. So I'm not taking the word religion too seriously. And taking it narrowly is, I think, far more harmful than would do good. There's a lot in science, modern psychology, so-called environmental movements, civil rights, human rights, and so on. But again, can I meet secular activists who are very disrespectful and disparaging towards religion? And I've met plenty of uh, male religious leaders who are on the surface uh, discounting of feminist and feminism and inside probably just confused and afraid. So is there any hope of, on some levels, at least the levels of our lives, we're the ones sitting here tonight, working for real respect, understanding, and cooperation? If I, when I talk this way, I feel it's a little dangerous. because there's a kind of uh, edge where 
you know, if, if we take the logic too far, it can lead to despair. It's one of the dangers with logic. It keeps churning away, and you can end up in a very stuck, dark place. So I'm not going to push the logic too far. But I do want to ask these questions because I think our species is, as a whole, in, in trouble. So if, if we have markers like the five that I mentioned, four were things that aren't necessarily primarily religious, though I, my, my view of religion, socially engaged Buddhism, will want to participate in all those. And... I'm thinking if religion can't reach out to other religions, feminism, environmentalism, human rights movements, and even secular atheists, if it's not possible for religions to do that in a respectful way, we're in worse trouble <laughs> than I want to imagine. So I'm pretty good at not imagining places that I don't think are worth going to. Some people like to go there. I don't see the point. So I kind of go, okay, far enough. Just I stop with this is important. Can we do things? towards those areas. I believe we can, and I've sketched out, I've got a few ideas, nothing complete or comprehensive, which is fine. A talk like this is more to provoke thought, uh, encourage reflection, and especially self-reflection. Here are some things I believe will be needed for religion to do its job. Here it might be helpful to mention a Buddhist scholar, John Peacock. I believe he used to practice primarily in Tibetan tradition but more recently he's become enamored by the Pali suttas. He also teaches at Cambridge, Oxford, one of those two. And uh, he speaks of the religion of consolation, where religion provides beliefs. And by the way, we can find these in the popular literature on mindfulness and insight meditation, which is full of beliefs. Even the way we cherry-pick science to make us feel good about what we're doing. That's what consolation is. It's hard being a human being. We get sick, we die, uh, there's violence and cruelty. It's hard 
stuff. And often religion has consoled us with heaven or, oh, don't worry, just meditate every day, you'll be okay. Uh, That's the religion of consolation. I agree with John Peacock that the Buddha's teaching was not primarily about that. I believe uh, Jesus and others were not primarily about that, but I mainly work in Buddhist tradition. So if we aspire for something more radical and profound in line with the Buddha's teaching, what will it take to be a real vehicle for peace? In line with Buddha's teaching, will require being serious about ethics. This seems to be coming around in this country after a few decades of trying to avoid it. And and scandals have slowly (laughs) encouraged us to uh, take the ethical piece more seriously. But I suspect there's more to do there. Buddhist ethics is primarily about non-harming. Other traditions, including, say, feminism, may frame that differently. Can we get serious about ethics, which in my mind, or sila in Buddhist terminology, is about how we behave in the world? how we treat others, how we treat the natural world, how we treat our own bodies. And then I want to add the uh, asterisk, take, uh, take ethics or morality seriously without getting self-righteous about it. That's a strong religious tendency, it seems. Once we kind of are on the straight and narrow, we're better than them. (laughs) And uh, that better than them, I don't think that helps with peace. It's better with the consolation. Oh, I'm good enough now. I'm going to get the big reward. But that self-righteousness doesn't help with peace. So that's one thing. I can elaborate later if there's any need. But it seems to me perfectly obvious if, if the ethics are not adequate, then there's too much harm. Too much harm means violence. That means not much peace, or only intermittent peace. Or 
peace in some communities, some neighborhoods, and then other communities and neighborhoods where things are, there are a lot of deaths. And then we find out even the communities that thought they were immune, turns out they're not as immune, though the agent of death may be suicides and things like that. Number two, it will take reforming relations with power. Every historical religion I know of has gotten in bed with the local power structure. In Asian countries, when the power structure was feudal, which is the vast majority of Buddhist history, the uh, the religious institutions would work together with the political social elites to get perks for the religious hierarchies. It's not quite as obvious that that's happening here in the States, but it might be just on a smaller scale because Buddhists are numerically not so big. But property is being steadily acquired, including by Liberation Park. And uh, that's power to own land, to have buildings, have electricity running, water, heat, money in the bank. And then internally, if we're going to reform relationships with power, with the state, or economic power, that means reforming our internal power relationships. I'd say in some areas in this country we're doing okay. Though I I worry if we get entrenched and own too much property or if our big retreat centers keep growing, then the the, uh, risks of rocking the boat will start to make it impossible to keep our internal power structures non-oppressive. When we're small, it's easier. So relations with power and including power relationships within A third area is to take take to heart Joanna Macy's work. She's uh, somebody I admire very much, who's both a very committed Buddhist practitioner, 
clear thinker, very inspiring woman, and somebody with a life of creative activism. She's now rather old, but she's still working. She has a uh, framework. I'll give a simple version of three main areas that I think summarize what it will take in the realm of social change. Although the third is not purely social change. One, holding actions. There's stuff going on that is dealing death and destruction. The Alberta tar sands, frac sand mining in Wisconsin, uh, oil trains passing through our communities, etc., etc. The XL pipeline seems to have been stopped for a while at least. Stopping it was a holding action. Some of these holding actions are happening. We're deporting a lot of people who might be killed when they arrive back where we're sending them. And we're still targeting drones or sending drones after people and hitting many uh, innocent people. So there's room for holding actions, including in our local communities. We don't even need to focus on foreign stuff. And if you like to primarily stay local, plenty to do locally, wherever we are. Second is to cooperate in building a just, peaceful society where everybody has a decent chance to lead a meaningful life with adequate safety and resources. Bernie and others are helping, if we didn't already know, helping us keep the inequality piece in the news. And that's just one strand of it. Black Lives Matter are helping us with that. 350.org is helping us with its piece. I go to Yes Magazine for creative and inspiring stories about what people are actually doing towards a society that I would like to live in. And I'm happy that even in southwest Wisconsin, there's some cool stuff going on. A lot of it around organic food, distributors of organic food, hospitals and schools, buying the food. There's a... Uh, there's an NGO based here in the city's land stewardship project I have friends involved with. So they're both here in Minnesota, a little bit on the other side of the Mississippi. There's some real cool stuff 
that seems to me looking forward to the society we could have that our children can live in. And then the third area in Joanna's framework is to do the inner work that allows us to wake up from our individualism, our selfishness, which is what Ajahn Buddhadasa stressed. If, in his view, all religion is primarily ways to cure us of our egoism and selfishness. And if religion doesn't do that, it's not worth the name. Buddhism's not worth the name if we're just doing some personal little ultimately selfish escape trip. There's still Buddhists who believe that, that somehow I'm going to meditate, get enlightened, and I'm out of here. It's not my problem anymore. That's a pretty ugly belief system, if you ask me, but it's still going. To do the inner work that allows us to have the courage, the goodwill, the creativity, the commitment, sincerity, and so on to lead lives that are really on the side of peace. So three pieces. Joanna's got books that go into more detail. So that seems important to me. Let me mention two quickly, and so there's time for you all to respond. This will take... Uh, profound compassion. Not what Pema Children calls stupid compassion, where we kind of give people what they want. Uh, that's, that's not real religion or spirituality. Profound compassion means we're willing to undergo hardship, put ourselves on the line, I don't mean, you know, stand up and get shot full of bullets, but endure some difficulties, hardship, to do our part. And it's up to each of us to find our part. I'm not here to tell anybody what your part is. I can suggest you look into that as, uh, deeply and seriously as you can. And if that comes from a deep compassion for the suffering that's going on and the suffering our children and grandchildren are likely to undergo, and then it's real compassion, it's for everybody, not just our children and grandchildren, but I can't get it how it's business as usual by people who claim to love their grandchildren. It, it just, I'm kind of letting out my beliefs here, hopefully you won't 
mind too much. People claim to love their grandchildren, and yet we're just doing the same old stuff. And we're bequeathing them perhaps a very untenable situation. If we come from compassion, we won't fall into despair. So the compassion's for us as much as it's for anybody. When we tap into that compassion, which it's already in here, it's part of Buddha nature, if we can borrow that word from our Mahayana cousins, then we will not succumb to uh, to despair, to fear, to apathy, to numbing out, and so on. And lastly, I'd like to speak of a vision based on a very important Pali word that you may not have heard before. The word is idapajayata. I translate it as conditionality. Idapajayata means depending on this. The reality that this depends on this and this depends on this. You'll see it translated as this, that, conditionality, but literally it's this, 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 which I think is to highlight it's the this of right now. This, this depends on this is that influence that are connected, related. It's kind of popular to use the word interrelatedness. And there's some debate whether that's Buddhist enough. I won't go there. But the the a word with a very solid Buddhist pedigree is itapajayata. Everything depends on something, and usually a number of things. And those things depend on other things, which depend on other things, which depend on other things. So I don't mind that that's a little creatively taken to mean interrelatedness, if we have this vision of that interrelatedness being a vast, shifting, pulsating, things coming and going and interacting in all kinds of ways that we can never fully understand. But we can, especially if we meditate with depth and focus, we can keep seeing this reality over and over and over, which is the heart of insight. We see that in our personal lives, our minds, our emotions, our behavior, our relationships, our communities, as well as the bigger society and world. If we have a vision grounded in conditionality, that this depends on this and that, and that this depends on other thises. If we get used to tracing this, both 
inside and around us in experience, in thought, a bit in history, think ahead the next few generations. That will help us get rid of them. Ultimately, there's probably not going to be any meaningful peace if there's still them. Them, us, opposed to them. I'm stealing something from I forget who. That's the ultimate refuge of the scoundrel. Scoundrel thinking is in me, probably in most of you, where we fall into this trap of us and them. You know, all that nasty business, we want to keep out the Muslims, no Syrian refugees here. That's, that's us versus them. We're the good guys. We're not sure whether they're bad guys, so they got to stay out of here because this country, we're the good guys. Or in some anti-racism work I've had the privilege of being involved in, one of the biggest hang-ups for well-intentioned, nice, white liberals, and I'm one of those, is still falling into the thinking, which often comes out in words that, you know, white people is us, and then people of color are them. And it, I was, when I started to listen to this, it's amazing how easily we slip into this. Or I catch myself when I'm hanging out with some men, you know, and we're talking about our wives, you know, there's another them. And all these ways that we make us's and them's. I also do it in when I'm stupid and am overly partisan to my flavors of Buddhism and then look at that group. You know, yeah, they're okay, but so this us versus them I see as real insidious. I see it happening in me. And this is something that Buddhism from the very beginning addressed forthrightly. I think that's a profound piece of what it will take for religion, including whatever forms we're up to, to be meaningful vehicles for peace. Thanks for bearing with me. And uh, the floor is open for any responses, additions, contributions, insights that you may have. And please don't be shy. Uh, <clears throat> thank you. Is this on? Can you hear me? Mm -hmm. uh, um, 
Thank you so much. I just kind of shot my hand up because, <laughs> and I don't know exactly what I'm going to say, um, but I I did want to respond because um, you kind of evoked a lot of pushed a lot of buttons or or it was very thought provoking your teaching tonight. Um, For me, as a, a relatively new to the Dharma, um, I have I have days that I'm very anxious. I wish I could. Um, I wish I had twenty years of practice under my belt, you know, and I could respond more skillfully to things. So, what you described, I find myself often in this kind of polarized mind state um, that I see in the culture all around me and and I and you know it affects me um, particularly with my family but also uh, just around I mean I'm I'm much more sensitive and I'm more aware than I used to be of just how it's just so imbued in our culture and it really bothers me, you know, and, and, and I, I see it in myself. Um, so I find, but I, 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 I'm encouraged so much by just the fact that we can come here tonight and these things can be, um, talked about and, usually what I end up going back to and the best medicine and the reason that I have an allegiance the the feeling that I have about the teachings I don't know what to do about the big picture I don't you know and I used to have a story and I used to have a lot of opinions and I used to talk them loudly and it seems like the teachings have kind of struck me silent in a lot of ways in the way I deal with my family and stuff, um, you know, they see me as a kind of a crazy socialist, you know, <laughs> which some of you, you know, uh, uh, a pagan. Uh, what in the world? You don't, you know, the Christian, the whole thing, because my family is primarily very, and you know, wrap it in the flag and let's go to war, and and I'm so frustrated with all these people, you know. And so there are times I'll walk around with this dialogue in my head at home in the kitchen. I'm cooking. I'm doing something, and I'm um, I'm coming up with this eloquent statement of truth, you know. And I get myself all worked up emotionally. I don't, can anybody relate to this, you know? And the the beauty, the thing that I that I value so much is that I can come here. I can listen to Mark teach, or you you know many. Yes, but what it always comes back to is that I cling. I cling to my story. I, my habit energy is really strong, and I have to keep it really simple at this point in my um, place in this in the spiritual journey. I just come back to oh, cling. You know, something as simple as sitting down, feeling the breath coming through my not. You know my nostrils and um 
kind of unpacking all that. Just, um, I can't figure it all out, but I know that I'm doing some kind of good, and I am improving because I'm subtly more effective than I used to be in situations. Not any big grand thing, just I, I'm a little bit more skillful than I used to be when I'm talking with my family or, you know, I initially would try to proselytize about Buddhism, you know, and I learned pretty quick because they're pretty, they're not just not interested, they're kind of contemptuous, you know, they don't want to hear it, they do not, I have to be wrong, <laughs> you know, so I've learned to just be quieter and try to be as aware and observant as I can be and, and just um, recognize dependent origination, how we all got here, and pretty amazing. Anyway, I, I don't want to go on and on, but I just, um, that's my kind of wacky response to what you had to say tonight. Thank you. My name's Lyndon. Hi, um, I'm David. Thanks, Sadikara, and thanks, Lyndon, for sharing. So one of the things that I think um, is very unique about, I think, the questions that you brought up is specifically that once you get a bunch of people together and there's some sense of trying to work on human problems together, you get to the point where you can, I believe have some or at least that it's my feeling you have some pretty significant likelihood that you can affect real change and real peace and um real progress but it does require certain kinds of things like everybody that that is able to coming together like that's sort of what i have started believing in in terms of the sangha right the the union or the the group of people that are here to try to practice together. You, you know, Mark was saying last week, you go into your own space. It's almost the most isolated thing you'll ever do is just sit here by yourself, with yourself, with the thing you think is yourself. But obviously it's very powerful to do it all together. And so I think that's true in a lot of other places in other religions. When people get together, this is something I heard about, you know, Islam, for instance, people, you know, terrorists are not the people who go to mosques. Like the people who are in the community don't make uh, radical decisions. They, you know, there's a sort of a, um, an equalization that comes about. So I guess the question I have is, um, I agree with Lyndon and the fact that like my own sort of voice for wanting change has kind of become more, I mean, my, I, I reach more sort of a contemplative state because of the fact that I'm interested in practicing. And at the same time, I want to say to people, come here to come to common ground and like figure out what you're doing in this reality and in your mind. How does one reconcile? Like how does one, you know, I know Buddhism doesn't really do very much proselytizing. So what would your advice be, I guess? Short answer is look deeply into conditionality. Then uh, things that we tend to 
create bound, we draw borders like the inside work and the outside work. That boundary could be shifted or dropped or expanded. But we, like our culture, at least the part that's influenced me a lot, we draw a pretty strong boundary around ourselves as individuals. There are still cultures in the world that don't do that. The the units, the family, or even the the small tribe, 30, 40, 50, however many people. So I'm bringing that anthropological piece up that the way we create this inner world is culturally constructed and so it could be changed. And meditation can really help with that. But to expand a bit, to really look into conditionality. them that both religion and nationality represent and artists and musicians are always the first ones to cross class lines or be curious about traditions from the outside and it seems that um, you know even in the history of America the first multiracially owned company was a music company and that there's a lot of agency for an individual to actually affect change through the arts um, rather than religion, and that religion is a way to find inner peace or comfort to give you the strength to sally forth. But I'm my experience of religion has has not put any kind of faith in it helping with world peace or the larger issues. I kind of agree about the religion as a construct, but for myself in terms of the war and peace in me. Um, I've had like a lot of success in some ways, um, and it really has to do with the uh, vibrancy of the present moment of like bringing peace to that and to bring uh, sort of an, an opening element to it or a, a yin energy that unfolds and uh, experiences uh, the present moment in a fresh new way that feels whole it feels one-hearted, and it feels like it creates peace around me, like the river goes with me. And I've failed miserably with my son. I have a teenager, and I'm judgmental and angry at times, and I feel responsible for outcomes, like I'm supposed to fix him, and it doesn't work at all. And I guess what I would say is the mystery of how change happens is uh, for myself... It's just the whole thing because um, who knows how, how, how the things got together for all those changes to accrue when they happened. I mean, right behind you, you'll see we have the Buddha's mother on that altar. It was not there last time you were here. How did that happen? You know, it's, it's a mystery. And so um, I, I just think that, that, that this 
that we are the we are it you know like like it just that local local really local and i i just have given up hope that i'll ever uh not have a war with my son you know i i i've stopped expecting the changes to come to me in the order i want them in the way it's usually i'm trying to do this and i look out of the corner of my eye and i'll say there's a change so anyway um I still have hope, and I still have joy, and I still feel like um, like it's not ended yet. Things ended. Most things haven't started. Thank you. Uh, my name's Dirk. Thank you for your talk tonight. Uh, you evoked some thought. I, too, like the feminine touch that we started the year out here with. It was nice to see. Um, my personal feeling is that religion does not belong in the public arena and that the way that I affect change is through skillful practice so that I learn to see the ripple effect of my actions. And how I see the responsibility in that is, this is just a thing that I came up with, is what I do to myself, I do to you. And what I do, what you do to yourself, you do to me. And so I have to think about that, and that ripple effect goes out, and how we see that and how we learn about that is through that skillful practice, and it changes. For me, it changes almost daily. I'll look back six months, and I'll go, wow, how come I didn't get it back then? So I'm just thankful that we have the time here to talk about things like this, and we have the freedoms that our government affords us, and that's what their job is, you know, in short. Thank you. Hi, my name's Jesse. I normally don't talk in public, so if I mumble a bit, you'll have to excuse me. But um, I'm here tonight as part of a process in my life to finally overcome PTSD and a troubled past. Um, religion was a very large detrimental part of that past in a fundamental Christian sort of way. And found reframing elements of my past that were once harmful or getting a new view on them can be helpful in distancing yourself from them, allowing them to take on a new form, a new identity. So obviously meditation is part of finding a sense of peace, a sense of calm and delving deeper into certain things. And as per our discussion tonight, I think the us and them is a very huge, huge element. Um, I forget what it was, but there was some psychology study conducting that human nature is natural to want to help one another. But even in the case of somebody who's homeless, oftentimes if we are not in a position to help, we feel guilt. And to cover up that guilt, we often find a doubt in the other person. That other person might have done it to themselves. That other person might be a bad person. So in a very complex way, we naturally put up those divisions. And in a way that is outside of our control, there's a lot of power structure in our country and in our world that could be best described as an oligarchy that benefits from dividing people, that benefits from emphasizing the danger of those people and how we're different 
And I think the way religion falls into that personally, I've been trying to come to terms with it myself. And I feel as though there's a difference between religion and spirituality. Spirituality can be religious, but it's much more individual where you take a personal responsibility. You take a personal awareness and a personal role. And religion tends to give people a shield to hide behind, a ultimate concept that so-and-so's God might step in or so-and-so's other person, their religion might be doing something that's good for them. It, it removes them once from the equation. And I think we need to be able to start viewing people as people not separate from ourselves, not much different from ourselves. But once we break down that barrier, it's much easier to stop worrying about things and stop finding those issues, why they're bad, and actually welcoming, welcoming, ugh, can't talk anymore. welcoming them into what we feel might be a solution. I'm rambling at this point, I suppose, but... Thank you for your talk tonight. Um, I am glad that I had uh, I have been exposed to different religions now, at least five of them. <laughs> Through my whole life, I was raised Muslim for 22 years. And then uh, I was able to, since I moved here to Minnesota 23 years ago, I went to church, Methodist, Lutheran, different churches for... Um, 10 years so I tried to get familiar with that and uh, thanks to my upbringing because my dad's family weren't practicing Muslims and my mom family were very religious Muslims so I grew up knowing you can be good without not being religious so I had that flexibility in my mind and then um, I also was familiar with Baha'is and uh, not as my Jews, but um, other religions I try to um, be open-minded to. And then um, throughout my life, I have been thinking, what is the problem with us that we can't find peace, even though we, we seem to be talking about it a lot in every religion, um, including inner peace or outer peace, both at the same time and... Religious people sometimes seem to be the farthest away from it. And um, one thing that comes to my mind is mostly fixed views that we, we tend to have, no matter what religion. I used to think it is Islam, and so I took myself away from what I, ra I was raised. And then um, when I went to church, I was like, this is the same thing. But then my Islamic view got more um, deeply embedded with me having a new experience because my mom wasn't there anymore to tell me to do this, do that. So I had this relationship with God. Rather, it was more free relationship. Um, then I figured in Christianity, there, there are some, do some of those fixed views. And then, thank goodness to the center, I'm seeing that it happens anywhere in even in 
paganism in whatever religion, atheist, anything that you have, or if you're Democrat, if you're Republican, whatever you are, if you are fixed in whatever you think, it is coming mostly from your ego. And uh, in whatever we are, we, we can just be, be there, but not having fixed views and be open-minded to all the possibilities. Like today I was hearing this uh, talk from BBC on uh, the difference between gender and sex and how the science is changing, how our understanding is changing from about these issues. And I was mind blown because we just don't understand ev everything. We just have to accept that so if we don't understand it, we can't have a fixed view. And I'm thankful to the center that gave me that um, wording and the vocabulary to be able to talk and understand and process this fact. It's nine o'clock. <laughs> That's a nice place to end. So thanks to everyone who just spoke and your comments, your concern, your thoughts. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.